I'm Sarah Resnick. And I'm LaShawn Moore. And we are the hosts of the Weave Podcast, a project of the weaving yarn shop, Just Yarn and Fiber. Hello. Hi, everyone. I hope all is well. In this week's episode, I'm speaking with Lydia Wint, the founder and design director of California Cloth Foundry. Originally from New York, she trained at the Fashion Institute of Technology and worked with some of America's top fashion designers and brands, including Tom Ford for Perry Ellis, Calvin Klein, Jones New York, and The North Face. Before founding California Cloth Foundry in 2014, she was a member of the faculty of the Academy of Art University's internationally recognized fashion department. While there, she taught graduate and undergraduate courses in textile design and sustainable fashion. Lydia's past work in the fast fashion industry informs and guides California Cloth Foundry's mission to positively change the industry one bolt of fabric and garment at a time for the health of the planet and the future of her two daughters. Hello, Lydia. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you for joining us. Hi, LaShawn. Thank you for inviting me to your uh, to your podcast. This is fantastic. Can you start out by introducing yourself and also talking about your affiliation to the California Cloth Foundry? So um, talking about myself, I am a uh, New Yorker, born in New York, um, and then moved to California about 20 years ago. And um, I cut my teeth in the uh, fashion industry on um, 7th Avenue in New York City, and I began working with some of the greats, um, Tom Ford when he was at Perry Ellis America, uh, Calvin Klein, uh, Jones New York. I did a stint um, working with a private label manufacturer, um, and uh, our major clients were Bloomingdale's, um, the limited stores, Philip Van Heusen, which owns um, Tommy Hilfiger and um, a, a number of other brands. So um, I'm pretty much deeply rooted in the fashion industry. And then my affiliation to California Cloth Foundry is that um, after moving out to California and um, consulting and teaching uh, sustainable fashion and teaching textile design here. I began working with a nonprofit called The Fiber Shed, and they had a project for me with the North Face, and I was tasked with creating the program for them called, uh, eventually it became the Backyard um, Project or the Backyard Hoodie Project. And they needed a commercial, um, you know, designer and and somebody that was, you know, that had a deep relationship uh, with many of the different um, supply chain partners that are now part of California Cloth Foundry. And so I created a supply chain for them, redesigned the product with the North Face and with the Fiber Shed. This was a nonprofit um, kind of collaboration with the North Face. And at that time, um, I grew the program from 200 hoodies to 7,000 hoodies, and and we needed to be able to manage the liability through a corporation rather than through a nonprofit. 
and it was a partnership with the North Face, but the North Face was not managing the liability of the supply chain. So I founded California Cloth Foundry as a corporation to manage the um, entire supply chain with the intention of setting up a company that would that would then grow um, from that um, from that origin from this all American supply chain. And the goal was not only to supply textiles to greats like um, the North Face and um, Levi's, um, but it was uh, the the main goal was to create um, volume scalable textiles um, programs that then I could or then California Cloth Foundry could sell to smaller brands and. Um, the power of of volume is is really important in in um, the supply chain, whether it's you know global or whether it's local. In that, when you work with mills, small designers don't have the power to be able to buy a thousand, two thousand, three thousand yards worth of fabric, so they don't have the opportunity to purchase completely regenerative and sustainable and clean and green and organic. Um, textiles. It's only the large, you know, the giants, the ones that can command the volume to be able to do that. So the intention of California Cloth Foundry's textile side was to be similar to a farm box where I get a number of orders um, from small brands and then go into a into a cooperative um, order of let's say a few thousand yards of either a jersey or a French cherry or a twill, and then be able to sell, break that order up um, through my company and sell textiles to other small fashion brands that were on the path towards regenerative and sustainable collections. And bringing it to today, um, we have um, launched our first Los Angeles, um, we call it first edition LA. Um, and we had a collection in San Francisco, but now we've, we've moved all of our manufacturing down to Los Angeles. And um, we, have, we have a headquarters up here in San Francisco where I am right now. And um, so now we not only sell textiles to a number of fantastic brands, we also have our own collection of apparel brought through the entire supply chain, dyed with natural um, natural dyes, and finished with completely green um, ingredients. So there's no petroleum in our products. And and our goal is to be 100% regenerative. At the moment, you know, re regenerative is about. Um, mostly agriculture at the moment, which would be food and fiber. And the dyes are regenerative, meaning what, whomever we are purchasing these dyes and these fibers and these um, yarns from, it, it means that when they are growing those fibers or they're growing those dyes, they're working on agriculture and they're working in systems that they want to improve and leave better than where when they began. So they're leaving the soil better. So it's richer soil to be able to create more and more beautiful, you know, 
dye plants and cotton and hemp and um, you know, linen, flax, um, and even regenerative agriculture within um, wool and silk. You know, there there's a way to to um, raise your and and rotate your uh, your herds, or within silk, so that you're you're creating ethical and healthy um, systems for your animals. And so that's what we're talking about with regenerative. So our textiles are regenerative. And when we assemble them, our, we consider all of the different components and all of the different um, labor that goes into it. And our intention in regenerative is to be more than sustainable, not just sustaining status quo, but actually creating products that help to um, clean up systems and um, to leave it better than when we began there. That's so amazing to hear you go into depth about the business structure and also what has inspired the way that you do business with California Cloth Foundry. I'm really also very impressed with the system you've created being, you could say, a mediator between having to fulfill these really, really large orders, and then also being able to provide products for smaller designers to then build themselves up to potentially become producers. I'm really curious, what were the early steps or what kind of inspired you as you made your transition from traditional fashion into sustainable fashion? Did it start with North Face? No, it didn't. Um, but thank you, LaShawn, um, for saying that because uh, this has been, I, you know, I want to date myself, but it's been 30 years of, of educating myself, making mistakes, um, creating relationships within the industry, business to business, um, and, and listening to the customer um, and teaching as well. So when I began in New York, it, it, you know, I was just very excited to be able to create 20,000 skirts for Bloomingdale's, right, in three different colors, um, in five different sizes, and really negotiate with the mills and negotiate with the manufacturers to, to bring the price down and um, to be able to please my customer, which, you know, I worked with a very large team when I was there, but I, I was touching every part of that product development. And we were always much more concerned about price points for our, our big corporate customers. Well, it doesn't matter whether it's corporate or not, but for our customers, we were concerned about the price points. And eventually it was in the nineties and eventually that was the beginning of true fast fashion. And we were part of that fast fashion movement. And what I was realizing is that when I would go to the mills and I was asking them to swap out a fiber or a color or dumb down a design, um, they were really working hard and to develop, you know, products that were less expensive. And what that did all the way down the supply chain, we were taking pennies out of the supply chain to to create a better pro profit and a lower price. And that actually all the way down the supply chain was taking pennies out of like the farmers and the, the mill workers pockets. And once I realized that, as well as, you know, going to the mills and working within the system, visiting um, the, the dye houses, 
I was realizing that not only was it um, not toxic, but I would say it was not really an, an ethical system that really supported, um, it, it didn't support clean agriculture because the farmers were trying to produce as much as possible because the price was too low. They really wanted the orders. So they would lower their price so that they could get you know, huge orders that would go eventually into, let's say a Bloomingdale's or a limited store. And so it was during that time of, of early fast fashion that I realized that it was a non-sustainable system. And then eventually moving to California and just consulting and teaching, um, what I did was I took that unsustainable, all those components that were not sustainable, whether it was the ingredients that were toxic or the labor practices that were toxic and started to work on swapping out, you know, higher prices, better labor practices um, and and cleaner ingredients. So it was it was step by step. And, you know, sustainability is a is a slow process. And the first step was swapping out conventional cotton with organic cotton and also considering what um, what finishes and dyes were being used and requesting um, the more expensive finishes and dyes that were low toxins, like GOT certified global organic textile, you know, um, uh, certifications. So it was it was a slow process, and it was mostly from experiencing the negatives before. Um, before learning how to replace them with the positives. I think that answers your question. <laughs> I mean, we can go into more detail of, for every single step, but it, it really was, it really was learning from, um, from the mistakes and learning from the, the, the system that was creating a more, you know, fast fashion was toxic, you know, in every, in every way. Yeah. I mean, one of the best ways to learn is to make mistakes. And so I absolutely understand what you're saying with like how you had to kind of see how toxic fast fashion was going to become and how that inspired you to create such a sustainable system. I'm really curious, as I've begun to see now a lot more organic cotton available in stores and even through just yarn, we are, we use uh, one of our in-house yarns is half conventional, half organic. Yes. And we've been learning more and more about how to continue to, to create organic yarns. And also we've also had to deal with pricing and such. And we noticed that the price of organic cotton has risen, which I know is a great thing for organic farmers. And I'm just kind of curious if you've noticed that, like if you've noticed a, a, a change within the last maybe five to 10 years of sustainability. Yes. And thank you for saying that with, with the sensitivity to price points, it's really difficult. So the the transition um, to a more sustainable system is the step towards regeneration, right? It, it is, and the, the, the price is going up. Um, that, is, that is a byproduct. And that byproduct is something very difficult for the consumer to, um, you know, to accept 
but they're accepting it more and more. And that's why there's more organic cotton out there. And that's why the demand is rising. And um, that's also why the price is rising because finally um, labor is being paid um, better, you know, and they should be, you know, it's, it, you, you, you need to, a farmer needs to be able to sell their product at the right price for them to make a profit and for them also to eliminate some of the um, chemicals and the GMOs that that aided in fast growth and really dense um, yields, very high yields. So when you're using all this chemistry, yes, you can get faster and higher yields, faster growing products with higher yields, meaning many much more of it. And that's the only way, the way that they can keep the price down. Once you do, once you create a more sustainable system, your yields go down a little bit. You're buying more expensive green chemistry, right? The, the, you know, and you're buying more expensive seed and you're paying your labor properly so that they abide by the rules instead of cutting corners. And when they cut the corners, that's when we have, you know, highly toxic chemicals being used, which then deeply affects our environment, as well as making the people who are working within that system sick. So I think the higher prices, you know, in a, in a best case scenario, I wouldn't go dark here. I would say the higher prices directly represent the healing of the system. And um, the higher the prices of the, the yarn, you know, obviously all these mills, they have more, all of their expenses are going up as well. Um, so they need to support their, their workers, their machines and their, you know, their systems so that they don't have to cut corners as well. And I do believe that when you cut corners to make, to, to lower the price so that you can get the order, they'll do anything. They'll swap out, um, you know, as a manufacturer, they'll swap out the the more expensive, they won't buy the more expensive ingredients, they'll buy the cheapest ingredients that they can find, which are often the most toxic. So I think it's a good, the, the higher prices are good, it's, it's, it's just um, re-educating the consumer and creating the demand and helping the consumer to um, understand the benefit of it so that they can make really thoughtful choices and maybe they'll buy less but they'll buy better hmm. and kind of going back to something that you were talking about before about fast fashion and the start of it i've never had the opportunity to speak with someone who sort of saw its rise and i'm always really curious what was the change in the industry that made fast fashion happen like or was there a change or was it just something that had to happen at some point like the system just got to a point where this was what it was like i'm really curious if it has something to do with just large corporations if it has something to do with a surplus of manufacturing exporting labor like where did fast fashion come from <laughs> yeah that's really it's a it's a good question and it is really interesting the 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 um the movement of it or the you know you can see the rise of it in the 90s and the, and all that i 
really can say to that is what you just said. The manufacturing wants to grow, right? You get excited when you can create more and and large, beautiful stores, you know, like the Bloomingdale's, any any store, not even beautiful, you know, if you see, you saw large stores start to emerge and like, you know, I'm not saying the, the Target and the Walmarts only, but, you know, I would say Target and Walmart are two of the big contributors to that. Um, and of course, the, the other fast fashion brands that, that, you know, we could list, but there's really no reason to because everybody knows them. I think that they started to emerge because the, they, they found that they could negotiate better prices, you know, with higher volume and they could create, um, with, through marketing, they could create the demand that they, they wanted um, through, you know, culture. Um, new is better and you can't wear the same thing twice within the same group of people. You know, it's, it's a cultural, it's a cultural shift as well. So I think it's it's a lot of what you just said, you know, it's the manufacturing. Manufacturing wants to grow, corporations want to grow. Look at Amazon, Amazon wants to grow, um, Whole Foods, all of these companies that seemed quite normal and sustainable before um, started to grow like crazy so that they could you know, they'd have more investors, right? And they'd have more shareholders and the shareholders were excited because they were getting a great, you know, return on investment and dividends. And so it's a, it's growth without, without consideration of, um, it's growth, I'm sorry, it's growth and um, lowering prices. And as I said, if, if you get an order for a thousand skirts from jc penny you know i i you know we we actually when i was when that was one of our private label customers um jc penny's and we were manufacturing in new york and we were manufacturing in uh the caribbean and we got an order for um twenty thousand one color skirt it was very sheer and that skirt was like a layering piece and it was so inexpensive to create offshore that um, we just kept on supplying it at, at a very, very low price. And then by mistake, one of our factories, I think it was in China, sewed it inside out because you could see both sides. You couldn't really tell which side of the fabric was the right side of the fabric. Well, then they returned 20,000 skirts to us and we couldn't do anything with it and we had to throw them away, right? So that's the beginning of fast fashion. You have to, you, you're moving fast. You're getting more and more orders. You have to go offshore unless there's a huge manufacturing facility and, you know, in the Carolinas or, or in California that can manage 20,000 units tomorrow. So the demand, the, the, the lead times were getting shorter. The fashion trend was turning really fast. The deliveries, they always wanted new. So that's Zara, right? You know, once a week you'd get a new product or H&M. So I think it's, it's cultural and it's corporations and it's exciting for, for companies to grow so fast. And when that happens, investors want to invest more. So that feeds a, a system that is, if not 
watched and checked um, can can be destructive instead of productive. So yeah, so in the 90s, I think that that's when these big box stores started to grow. And, you know, now we see the results. I don't know why it wasn't before, but maybe culturally it wasn't as, um, it was more acceptable to be able to wear the same clothing a few more times. And, you know, mm. it, it, it's just, I think, I think it's, it's, it's a bit of marketing too. And yeah. prices, sensitivity to pricing. Yeah, and I mean, I, I always think about this. I think from a, an aesthetic design perspective, I think clothing has gotten a lot more simple, uh, less lines, pockets that don't open fully yes. or collars that don't fully function. You know, clothes yes. have become a lot different over time. The fast fashion version of things that were maybe made in the, the 70s and 80s. And even when I look at vintage, like when I go to vintage stores and I worked at a vintage store, I would mm -hmm. always just love looking at the clothes and just be amazed at the quality of just the fabric alone. Yes, And also mm -hmm. you can still see the hand of the person that made the clothes. Whereas I feel like in fast fashion, you really don't see much of the hand, even though it absolutely exists because all clothes are handmade, but right. you can just see a really, really, really big difference in the way that the clothes are made and produced. And yeah, I think that there's so, so, so many things that contribute to the, the progression away from it. And it is nice to see that people are going back to having a desire for well-made clothes and are understanding the value of having things that last, you know, real pieces. Right, right. And that was, you know, and, and, and I'll, I'll take that real pieces and clothing that lasts um, into our first collection that we created for California Cloth Foundry. And our intention is, you know, it's, it's not a tailored suit. So tailored suits, you have this mentality that you can spend more money and it will last a lot longer and you can have it repaired. This is what we hope. More bespoke, but we hope, you know, to, but everything that is, um, everything on our collection right now it's it's made in a way the textiles are made to last the designs are made to last a number of seasons and build into your wardrobe so your wardrobe should build upon itself and um it should it should feel real as you said those seams you should be able to see that those seams aren't going to fall apart in two wearings or one washing and so our our intention is just that I don't know if you call that slow fashion, but it's really just putting a lot of attention into number one, the design, number two, the ingredients, which of course is, is our true focus here, that all the ingredients should be good for you and be good for the supply chain and be good for the environment. And then you want to have them around for a long time, right? You want to have it in your closet. You want to have it just within your wardrobe. And that's, I think that's going back, as you said, to, to the vintage clothing that you're looking at. The, the, you, the fabric felt better. The seams looked better. The pockets worked. And that's, that's what we want because then you're, gonna, you're, you're going to want to repair it instead of throw it away. And that's the, that's the idea of shifting away from that fast fashion and shifting into more healthy, clean ingredients. Because if you're investing in healthy, clean ingredients like the food you eat, 
um, in your in your wardrobe, like the fibers you're putting on your body and the colors that are that you're wearing, um, you're going to become attached to it and you're going to invest more money in it. So it better be made well, right? Because <laughs> it's going to be more expensive. Absolutely. And, you know, it also makes me think a lot about luxury fashion or, you know, luxury in quotation, because um, that is where you tend to see higher quality fabrics and pockets that work and, you know, extra design lines and things of that nature. But also then the price is, is inflated. It, it is interesting when you look at sustainable fashion kind of exist within this very interesting space where we are much less expensive than luxury fashion items um, but the quality is very is comparable but but we are making clothes that we are aiming to be accessible for people that are not in a luxury fashion buying market i guess yes. you could say and bracket right income bracket right yeah. right exactly income bracket yeah yes um add to add a little bit to that luxury um uh conversation i i wanted to um say that when i was in fashion school i was at, at fit in new york i actually was i uh, put myself through school as a fashion model and i was very fortunate to be able to wear um uh giorgio Armani. i i i did a runway show for their Emporio line, um, Ise Miyake. Um, I was. Oh, I love Ise Miyake. <laughs> yeah, I was. I was. Um, I was the. I guess the muse or the model for. Uh, I'm not going to say the year, <laughs> but one whole <laughs> his secondary line. It's kind of like the uh, Emporio of Ise Miyake. It was IS, um, and it was their. It was their. You know casual um, kind of cool street everyday wear. And so I was very fortunate to be able to wear some of the most luxurious and wearable clothing. It wasn't the couture, it was their secondary lines always um, clothing. And so I, I, was, I cut my teeth in the industry by wearing some of the best made textiles in the world within um, this design category that um that i live in that california cloth foundry resides in and so one thing i do want to say to support the luxury price point is that you are right they do put a lot of um uh, a lot of money in that price point goes into the textiles as well as the assembling of the garments, as well as all the beautiful trims and bells and whistles and how those pockets work and how that collar lays and all the infrastructure in the clothing, even if it's a cool, just casual tracksuit done by, let's say Celine just did this beautiful fashion show and it's kind of an athleisure couture um, show. Check it out. Um, I think it's spring, summer, 21. Um, but anyway, so a lot of a lot, it doesn't really matter the style, but a lot of effort and uh, money goes into the um, into the assembling and into the ingredients and the materials. And then on top of that, 
you've got all of the very expensive marketing for the fashion shows and for the models and for the advertising and for the, you know, the, the, that's the escalated price there. But the, you know, the quality is there. So as you said, we're striving for creating something that is along the luxury product quality and, um, and look and feel without that price point. And it's difficult. That's, that's where, okay, so we're in the sustainable world. How do we sustain a high quality product uh, without that very high price point? And that's, I think, you know, a challenge to um, everybody within the marketplace that we, we reside right now. Absolutely. And I think that that's something that is on the mind of every sustainable designer is really figuring out how to navigate that space. And I have to say, you all are doing such a phenomenal job at California Cloth Foundry. Thank you. One of the things that I'm also really interested in talking about is the masks that you create. You started producing them as a response to the COVID-19 pandemic, and I've had the opportunity to interact with them. But you can first start out by talking about how you began producing them and maybe telling people about the fabrics that you use when you produce and sell your mask. Thank you. Um, yeah, I'm so glad we got one to you. And um, I wanted to, uh, well, I just, I, I, I want to say it, the mask, it's, it's just, it's, it's crazy. We're in this pandemic. It's scary. It's, um, it's going to be here for a while longer. We had no intention really of, of making and selling masks throughout 20, the end of 2020 and 2021, but that's, that's probably what's going to happen, right? So, you know, let's reverse back to the first quarter of, of this year. And um, in March, we were, we were, you know, Jan, Jan, Feb, we were just finishing up and, and just, just boxing up and all ready to ship our clothing to a number of small boutiques that we were excited to to launch our collection with in San Francisco and Los Angeles. And they were saying, hey, slow down, hold on. Um, we're not getting foot traffic. We're not getting a lot of activity. Um, there's this scary, you know, uh, COVID thing happening. So we waited. And then in March, the world shut down, right? And it shut down fast. And we were told by the mayor's office in Los Angeles, do not, you know, obviously everybody was told don't come to work. And on the flip, you know, on the other side of that, we don't have masks. Everybody needs masks. Healthcare workers need masks. Fashion industry, any, because LA is such, you know, LA, Los Angeles and New York are the two big fashion industry manufacturing hubs. So the mayor invited or asked or pleaded actually um, for the fashion industry to, if, if we could, if we had the capacity to come in and make masks and as many as possible. And they actually sent us through their mask initiative in March, um, April, maybe. But I think we went right back in the end of March, the beginning of April to, to our factory. They sent us specifications 
on the masks that they needed immediately. And so we downloaded the specifications, sent them to our pattern maker. We got permission to go in and we made as many masks as we could from the textiles that we had in inventory um, to make more clothing from, you know, for our line. So all of these masks that we quickly pivoted because, you know, the world shut down, all of these masks that we have made and that we send out now with our clothing when people place orders, you can either buy a mask separately or, or with, you know, you buy a garment and you'll get a matching mask. All of those masks are made from our clean um, green uh, textiles. And so what you're breathing through, you're breathing through organic cotton washed in a little bit of soda ash and maybe some soft enzyme that is the same enzymes from the food industry that you make beer and cheese with. Um, if you've got a charcoal mask, you're breathing through the same fabric that is in our clothing, that is in our clothing line. So we pulled, we pulled our rolls of fabric right off of our clothing line and put them into the mask program. And so um, we got a lot of masks out to um, LA, to LA Protects. And then what we did was we had a buy one, give one program. And we gave so many masks to so many amazing um, nonprofit and first responder groups. Um, so we, we sent out, I would say with a buy one, give one program, we sent probably about 6,000 masks out. And then with our amazing partnership with the Fiber Shed, the Fiber Shed said, hey, the Navajo Nation, now this is, this is the end of April, the first week of May. No, end of April, the Navajo Nation is suffering and they need masks and they don't have any, and they, we need to get them masks immediately. How do we do a fundraiser for that? And I said, well, why don't we do a dye your mask, medicinal mask dye program? And um, she said that would be great. So they put that together and we did a, a workshop online and we raised um, enough money to send almost 800 of our masks and they sent 300 masks that were made by their fiber shed community. So we got a thousand masks out to the Navajo Nation um, by mid-May, like May 10th or 12th, I think that's when we got those masks out. So the you know, the, the reason we did that was because number one, we care, right? Number two, we were asked by the mayor's office to go in to work and make masks and make as many as possible. You know, we had to pay everybody to do this. That's why we did a buy one, give one program. But um, we feel really good about that. You know, we, had, we, we pivoted because we're local. Our supply chain is local. We had our fabrics in inventory. And um, we care, we wanted everybody to be safe. And so today you're breathing through, if you have one of our masks, you're breathing through plants and minerals. And all of those plants and minerals are um, either from the food industry. You know, we, we buy our, um, our finishing um, green chemistry from the food industry, or they're from organic cotton, uh, Tencel Modal, which is a beautiful branded fiber that's super clean, gorgeous by lensing. And do you have any new projects that you're working on? 
Um, so new projects, we are developing a textile from a color grown cotton and climate beneficial wool blend. And um, that should be coming out in the next probably eight months. And then we're also doing for summer 2021, a, a linen color grown cotton and white cotton blend. Um, and so we're playing, we're really playing with some more blends and um, working with, um, I can't really say her name yet, but with a surfer in Los Angeles, she's, she's kind of a, superstar um, surf celebrity and we're going to put together a regenerative naturally dyed and printed small capsule collection for her um, and just look for our next our next delivery um, of apparel they'll be popping up in the next probably um, end of January beginning of February our next collection so that's what's happening with us Sounds amazing. It's been wonderful talking to you. And before you go, we have one question that we ask everyone that joins the podcast. And that is, do you have any advice or words of wisdom to share with weavers and textile enthusiasts? Any advice to share with weavers and textile enthusiasts? What I would say is, um, number one, it's so wonderful that that people are are actually creating their own textiles because then they then then they understand how they're made and with what ingredients they're being made and it really helps the um, it really helps to spread the word on what you know the care that um, goes into and the labor that goes into actually weaving something themselves and then cutting and sewing it into a I don't know a product. Um, as far as the advice for weavers on maybe ingredients, keep an eye out for all of these new um, these new these new blends coming out. Not not just from us, but there's innovators in my community um, around the world that are just just creating amazing regenerative and and biodegradable compostable beautiful naturally dyed natural ingredient um yarns and so it's a really exciting time for that as far as textiles enthusiasts get some textiles dye them naturally go into your kitchen um look at old ingredients on how to color your clothing and um and play around it's fun Amazing. Thank you so much. Uh, you're welcome. Thank you. I really enjoyed speaking with you and uh, I can't wait to see this. I love everybody that you're interviewing. It's so inspiring. Your community is fantastic. That's a wrap. If you're interested in supporting Lydia's work, you can find links in the show notes at www.chistyarn.com slash episode 130. Thank you for tuning into this week's episode. Until next time, happy weaving.